Gap was going through a very tough period. The earnings were going to be terrible. The stock was dropping, and I was a nervous wreck. I never ran a public company, and you know, there I was. So it took a year and a half to do the turnaround? I'll never forget. All the new goods hit, and it was like a rocket ship. You know, Steve, I kept saying no for a year to join his board. That wasn't smart on my part. And finally, he said, if you join Apple's board, I will join Gap's board. And I said, we have a deal. Why did you leave Gap? Don fired me. The day after he fired me, told me he made a mistake. I had lunch with a guy who runs a company and he says, how do you deal with the creatives? Uh, it's not easy. And I said, it might not be, but the most difficult people to manage at times are the most talented. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to Inside Fashion on the BOF podcast. This week, we have a very special conversation with someone who has come to be known as the Merchant Prince of Fashion. Mickey Drexler grew up in the Bronx working at his dad's company in the garment district and then carved out a legendary career working at Bloomingdale's, Ann Taylor, The Gap, and J. Crew. These days, Mickey is working with his son on a new brand called Alex Mill. And in his conversation with BOF's chief correspondent in New York, Lauren Sherman, he shares his advice for young executives working with creative partners. Here's Mickey Drexler, Inside Fashion. So Mickey, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. Are your parents, were your parents in retail or apparel or anything uh, like that? Yeah, I, um, my dad w worked in the garment business in New York City. Uh, we grew, I grew up in the Bronx and he had like a lot of other uh, first generation Jewish families or whatever. He worked in the garment business. He worked uh, buying buttons and piece goods for a coat manufacturer named Jill Jr., uh, and my mom always worked. She was uh, ill uh, from 28 years old. She had cancer and passed away 15 years later from uh, uh, being a chain smoker. Because in those days, no one really knew that cigarettes actually killed you. So, uh, so she, but she always worked as a secretary at the YMHA. Uh, so they both worked hard. I had no siblings. But I had uh, seven cousins who lived down the street and three of my mom's sisters. So it was an extended family. What was the YMHA? A Young Men's Hebrew Association. Oh. It was in the South Bronx. That makes and, sense. And I went to overnight camp uh, where she was a secretary for the summers uh, uh, at the camp because uh, she worked, uh, it was affiliated with the YMHA. And growing up, did you think you would? go into the same business your dad was in? Well, uh, I, I didn't think anything as a kid. Uh, I only worried about, <laughs> I worried about a lot of stuff because I was a worrying kid, but I, I didn't really think about what I do. I always dreamt that my dad would be uh, uh, successful because that's what he talked and dream about. It. He talked about always uh, wanting to kind of be successful. He never was by any measurement uh, successful at what he did. Uh, he worked for a, a kind of a boss who, you know, I heard about all the time who didn't treat him as kindly, maybe, uh, as he might have. But that's true of a lot of bosses. And he wanted to be, I'll use the word big shot. 
Mm. Now, this is in the 60s in the Bronx. And uh, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had no idea it would be the garment business. Uh, but I always worked starting at a young age, my teenager years going, uh, because he kind of forced me to go into work with him on holidays and on Saturdays. So I went to work for the coat company, you know, ticketing coats, uh, errands, uh, shipping, uh, carrying samples to uh, other people and stores, et cetera. Did you know Ralph Lauren growing up? Because he grew up uh, in no, the Bronx no, too, right? I, <laughs> he was on Marshall Parkway. I was okay. on Barnes Avenue. Uh, he, uh, I went to high school uh, at Bronx Science across from Marshall Parkway. Did, so, did you Do you remember when he was coming up in the late 60s? Oh, I remember him exactly because I always followed people who uh, did things that I admired. Uh, I was at Bloomingdale's. I started uh, 69 working at Bloomingdale's. And I remember Ralph, I didn't know him personally, but he came in selling wide ties to the men's department. And it was like revolutionary. And so I didn't know him. But, you know, because I worked at Bloomingdale's, uh, I knew people who bought ties from him. So I always looked at Ralph as someone I admired immensely uh, for what he did. And in at Bloomingdale's, did you do the retail program? I know a lot of the department stores used to have yeah. these great training programs. Well, you know, I was very lucky uh, in the sense my first day was in housewares. I couldn't stand it. Uh, I was trying to look for pots and pans. I knew nothing about it. And I was kind of lost. And the second day... Uh, they moved me, and this is my second day of my official career, they put me into a department, a junior department, it was called the Lexington Shops, I was the buyer. Mm -hmm. I actually went to the market every day, no supervision really, because in those days, and I, it's changed so dramatically, you didn't have someone breathing down your neck telling you what to do. So there I was, 23 years old or whatever, and I had a department, uh, Lexington Juniors, it was only in 59th Street, and I was in charge of buying all the merchandise. I had a really nice boss, Stanley Stern. He let me alone. I had a, two or three really hot items. And you know, you make a lot of money on hot items. The Elephant Pant by Arthur Bell uh, was my hottest pant in the world. It was a cuffed, big, elastic waist pant. Every day I was reordering it like crazy. So I did that for six months because Barbara St. Ange was on maternity leave. Unfortunately, she comes back, and there I go to the branches. So I did that for um, a while, and then I was promoted back uh, uh, into uh, 59th Street. I ran uh, women's swimwear, uh, T-shirts, and sweaters, my first buying job. I, they say I was like, I did it really quickly. Uh, and again, there I was, pretty much on my own, as most of us were, learning the business. I was very fortunate I had a woman named Katie Murphy who passed away at a young age. She was a fashion director and knew more about the business than anyone I knew, but because she was a woman, uh, she wasn't the CEO. Mm. She, she could have positioned, set, she just got it. And I was very lucky to have her as I kind of her pet. They treated me like, oh, go out with Katie. We went to Europe together, we bought together. And only in hindsight did I realize that the fundamentals of what I even do today, I think was set in place by Katie and I going on these trips and we're being buddies. So if I had an issue in work, I ran to Katie, not my boss. 
What do you think of this, Katie? What do you think of that? And you know, you don't realize you're learning so much every day. I had a huge learning curve. And uh, so I did that job for a year and a half. Then I was promoted into the boys area. And then maybe I went out to the branches again, and then I quit. So, and you you said you had a couple hot items. What what did that mean and how did you identify them? Especially back then when you were just starting out, how did you know that something was going to hit? Well, I, I think a lot of what people do is kind of uh, their DNA, instinctive, uh, nature, not nurture as much. Uh, I'm not sure, but I always, like I used to sell... Uh, when Wilkinson Sword Blades came out, I was in the eighth grade. I was working the garment center. You know, I was young. I was a kid. And I used to get a supply of them. They were really hard to find. And they were the best razor blade, hello, in the 60s. And I bought a supply and I resold them. Uh, to When I made deliveries, I have Wilkinson Sword razor blades. I didn't think it, I was an entrepreneur. I didn't think anything, but I could maybe make some money. And as a young child... Uh, I, uh, money, my father was a little obsessed about money because he never really made it. And I think I picked up some of the habits of, uh, wanting to have some safety and security. So that was a little safety and security. I used to keep, I uh, had a little drawer with my, uh, cash in it. I saved it. I never spent, there was not, not much to spend on. It's very impressive. <laughs> I wish I, I had a drawer with cash. Yeah. In well, it. it was like $10, you know, it wasn't like a lot. So why did you quit Bloomingdale's and what did you do after that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Just to step back, the reason I ended up working at Bloomingdale's, I had a summer job at A&S, now Macy's, and I fixed them up with a friend of mine. I loved my summer there, so I was ready to be hired. And uh, I fixed them up with someone I went to school with, and they offered him $500 more in salary than I did. Now, I didn't think about it other than I was furious. I fixed them up. They offered me 11, they offered him 11.5, and I am crazy furious. And, uh, you know, I didn't have mentors like everyone has a mentor today. This I couldn't talk to my parents about that, but I was pissed off. And uh, I interviewed at Bloomingdale's and decided, and it was a huge uh, important decision in my life, the second most to that date business-wise. And... Um, so I decided to work at Bloomingdale's. They offered me 11.5. I, I wasn't negotiating. I'm still not a great negotiator of salaries and all that stuff. Uh, and I went to work at Bloomingdale's. A&S would have taught me a whole different way of doing business, sale, promotion. Uh, they, they were very successful. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. So that kind of infuriated me. Anyway, why did I leave Bloomingdale's? Um, I got to the point where, and you know, I had to make a living. Uh, and I said, this is... And once I moved up a little, not a lot, uh, I started to think about two things. One, I don't love it as much because now I had the boys area and I was supervising. But more importantly, I always wanted to have really important regard for people I worked for. Uh, maybe it was my expectation. And I realized that, you know, forgetting what titles are, that at some point, you know, people get promoted without earning the promotion. And in big corporations, it wasn't like a huge corporation, it was big Bloomingdale's relative to what I thought of as big uh, in those days. And I started to realize, put your time in to a degree. If you're older than me or whoever, you maybe get promoted. And uh, I looked at the, the uh, surroundings and who was moving up. And I, uh, it, 
I, I wanted to change. Someone, someone at Macy's recruited me. Ed Finkelstein, who was then the chairman, very charismatic guy, recruited me. I left uh, and I stayed at Macy's a year and a half. Why? Because I was obviously looking for something I wasn't getting in the department store business. My last move in the department store business uh, was uh, Bloomingdale's was owned also A&S, mm -hmm. Federated Department Stores. They recruited me back. And I went back, mistake, but again, I didn't have the freedom of, I'll just do whatever. It wasn't like everyone did a startup. Yeah. I, you know, in those days, who did startups, who can raise money? You have to pay, you know, the rent. And I went to uh, A&S for four years and I said, that was it. So just like talking really quickly when you say 11.5, not to get too deep into yeah. to your <laughs> personal finances, but you mean $11,000. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the, qu yeah. the question I have is, was that a livable salary at that uh, yeah, era, in it, that era? It, it was. My rent, uh, I, I didn't want to pay Manhattan rents. Mm -hmm. So uh, my wife and I uh, lived in New Rochelle. Mm -hmm. We paid $195 a month in rent because we couldn't really afford the $300 a month uh, and she was in graduate school. So uh, I was paying for her graduate school because uh, we didn't have, you know, family money or whatever. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it was fine. I had a car. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I didn't expect. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, I could live. That's not bad. Yeah, but I always watched. I, I still live in 1960 dollars. Which you know, I kind of think of things that priced then and now. Well, I I want to talk to you later about the value of garments because I think you have a lot of good points on that. But going back to your career trajectory, yeah. So you quit ANS. Well, only when I had a job. When you so and and what was this new job? Because this is the end of the department store era. Yeah, I I spent uh, nineteen uh, twelve years, and at the end, I said no matter what job I would have here uh and i wasn't i wasn't like an easygoing non-worrying kind of person so i grew up thinking or sometimes maybe overthinking uh my life uh, where i wanted to be uh how would i be successful because uh, i i think i had a strong desire to be successful but it, you know who knows what that means especially when you grew up in my environment it doesn't uh, i wasn't sure how to define it but I also remember looking at the proxy, because Federated was a public company. Uh, and I said, you know, whatever it is, if in 25 or 30 years, I was the president or chairman of Federated Department Stores, not a big deal to me. I don't know if it was fine. It wasn't financial, but I was uh, in my early 30s. And I said, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And uh, I was offered and I turned down the opportunity to run Ann Taylor. Uh, and uh, I turned it down because first the founder, who was, a, a, I knew him, uh, Richard Liebskin, uh, started it. Uh, and we had 25 stores. And for some reason, I was probably felt safe having a salary coming in from a place I knew I probably was going to be at for a while. And I said no because he was going to be there. And then they offered me the job without him there. He would retire. Company was doing very poorly. And it was just purchased from Richard by Garfinkel Brooks Brothers Miller Roads. It was a department store company. They owned Brooks Brothers based in Washington, D.C. 
and I uh, and I uh, was having dinner one night, a Sunday night. This is like number three in my life, business-wise. And I'm having dinner with an older, uh, successful, kind of wealthy friend. Uh, and uh, it wasn't a mentor or anything, but you know, in those days when you're young and you meet someone who's had a huge job, and uh, I, I, I told him what was going on, and he said, take the job, the uh, Ann Taylor job, because take the job. He said, why? Because I'd rather run a 25-store company than being in a $500 million business where you're a vice president and you'll be on your own. Next morning, Monday morning, I called headquarters. I called the president of the corporation. I said, I will take the job. That was it. Huge thing in my life. I was 35, uh, and here I am. It wasn't a money thing because you know I didn't negotiate a good deal in hindsight, but whatever <laughs> it is, it is. Uh, started to run Ann Taylor as president uh, with very little supervision. The one thing I liked about my early years is no one really supervised you the way they do now. In, in these department store groups or big companies, you always have a boss, you have someone telling you no, no, no. Uh, and uh, Ann Taylor was a, a kind of a coolish company that had Soho Charcuterie, Jonah David Shoes, lost a lot of money. Uh, and uh, the big bosses said, if we don't, if we're not successful at this, uh, we're not gonna be able to make any more acquisitions. So I started uh, and uh, I spent uh, four years there. And what did you do there? What was it like? Was it because right now it's known as being kind of a workwear place? What was it when you got there and what did you make it into? Well, it was a complete mess when I got there. Mm -hmm. In terms of, you know, uh, the companies I, I like are companies that have brands that one needs an imagination uh, to run. So, Ann Taylor. 57 5th, 24 other stores, good real estate. Real estate's always really important. They had 25 stores, well-located. Uh, I, I, I learned quickly, one of the things I learned quickly which uh, impacted my career is there I was uh, in the 12 years in the department store business having to deal from time to time with people who had the same merchandise as I did, but they put it on sale. So at Bloomingdale's, right across the street was Alexander's, which was then a famous discounter, no longer. And they, I was a swimsuit buyer. They put the swimsuits on sale in June. I had to mark down my entire inventory to meet their prices. We had a policy. And so what you own becomes uh, worth one-third less overnight. Yeah. Not a way to build a business or be profitable. And it was a lot of what I did was just the feeling, instinct, learning, uh, and um, and over time I said there's no future in this, uh, in, in terms of not owning your product. I didn't want to depend upon vendors and brands that I did not own. So at Antiller I went to two makers, and they did all our goods because we didn't have the expertise to be overseas or in America to manufacture our own goods. But we designed, we styled them together, a little team. And I don't know if they were officially designers, but always good taste, good style, people who got it. So we entered the direct-to-consumer business, hello, in 1981. So when it, what did you want Ann Taylor to be? I think something I've observed as someone who's reported on you for a long time is that you have a good sense of like what people are going to want. What what did you think people wanted right then? Well, 
I wasn't sure, but I knew I wanted, I'll tell you what I've always wanted. Uh, I, I wanted really good looking clothes, stylish, cool. I can't give you better words that uh, felt right to me and were emotional along with always the classics people wear that kind of fit the same category. You know, like a camel turtleneck is never out of style, might be the fit, the shape, the, the whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and I call those the annuity parts of a business because when I look at high fashion companies, I say, well, how do you make money on that? Because you need to have someone paying the rent regularly. And uh, it's in the eyes of the beholder, I think. In my experience, uh, it's a vision you have. At Gap, when I got there, it was kind of a photograph in my mind. And you cannot uh, vary, in a sense, from the vision that you define in your mind. And it's in your imagination. And it's very difficult, but you manage to find people over time, merchants who get it. And then you micromanage like crazy the first year, year and a half or whatever. And plus in a small company, like other big companies, uh, you have to kind of control the vision and the definition of what it is. You say, that's not Gap, that is Gap, that's not made well, that is made well. And you have a team that kind of understands that over time. But at Ann Taylor, I was brand new at running a company, multi-category, so on and so forth. Thank God for the shoe departments, Joan and David then, because we kept traffic coming into the stores regularly or else we never would have lasted. But shoes drive traffic. And Joan and David was very hot and popular in those days. And uh, so I, I went in and I kind of did my job every day. And you develop a, a format in a way. I, I don't want to say, you know, I practiced every day doing my job. I still practice to this day. I'm, do, I'm practicing every day trying to get better. And, um, you know, always looked at all the goods when they were ready for the collection. Always spent, well, we were over the store. Spent a lot of time visiting with the salespeople, as I always do. And I just did what came natural. Uh, no one taught me. Um, corporate was in D.C., and it wasn't like they taught. And, and you stayed there for four years. Well, unfortunately, Allied Stores mm -hmm. was in a big fight to buy the company with uh, – it was Al Taubman and Companies. Now, Bobby mm -hmm. and Bill are, to this day, my friends, and I was kind of praying that they'd win the battle. But Allied Stores is hugely was no longer because Federated took them over, you know, yada, 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 yeah. and total bureaucracy uh, did desk checks at 10 to 5 every afternoon in their headquarters of the Grace Building. I had to use all their services. I had to wear a tie. I had to do this. I had to do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just, and then I uh, decided I'm out of here because the, my dream come true which was running Ann Taylor, was not going to come true with these people. If you have a bad partner or a bad boss or someone without vision or whatever, it's just not fun. Yeah. And uh, they, they were not fun and they didn't appreciate what we did. And they forced me, and I wouldn't listen, to put Ann Taylor, a unit of allied stores on our marketing. And I'm thinking, oh, hello. <laughs> You know, so no one taught me to say yes or no on that. But so I managed not to listen to that. But after a while, I was kind of getting tired of the rules yeah. and of them squelching creativity. Uh, and uh, so I uh, was exploring. I was a little concerned because where do I work now? Uh, I was 39. I didn't have any money. Uh, and um, so I was kind of looking around, uh, but I didn't know where to look. 
And I thought I want I want to start a company, but uh, I didn't know what to start, and I wouldn't know where to go for the money. But I did have a list in my uh, drawer while I worked at let me see it was A and S and Ann Taylor. So at A at, at A and S I had a list of products. I said, well, if I ever have a company, this is my list of products that I think the marketplace needs. And uh, but then I went to Ann Taylor. And I had a great time for. for Aside from the aggravation of that kind of bureaucrats that you yeah. worked for, I had a really good time. I loved what I loved my job, and uh, it was very sad when uh, Ally took over. But I stayed for three years after they took over the company. Oh wow! I, I wanted to learn. Uh, you know, I loved it. I loved the people, and uh, I wanted to learn how to do this because I didn't realize, it, except in hindsight, what an opportunity it was to take a small company and start to turn it around and do stuff and make it like really successful. And I never really appreciated what we did. And it was very, uh, in those days, it was very cool. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I had this list in my desk. I met uh, Rose Wells, may she rest in peace, fixed me up. She was consulting for the Gap. And Gap was going through a very tough period. I met with Don Fisher off and on for six months, and he agreed to fund my list, a startup, because I wasn't moving out of New York. Hello, you know, and uh, so I had this list. I had a vision. I had an idea. So, and he wasn't. I think he uh, was one thing. He was like ready to do it. And the more I got to know him and his company, the more I realized if he started to fund me in New York, and he kind of knew this. Um, I don't know what the financial future of Gap was, because it was going south. Yeah. And going south pretty quickly. What was was Gap still like Levi's then, or it was it went from one hundred percent Levi's in nineteen sixty nine. This is nineteen eighty three to thirty three percent Levi's, and then they had about ten other names of brands they sold. You know, fake names, like really bad names. Yeah, like. Uh, Tails, something really. <laughs> so this is like product that they would get from third parties. No, no, they actually made up the names. They went, oh. they went, and they manufactured cheap goods, and it was always on sale. Okay. Uh, in fact, my first visit to the stores, I'll never forget this. I get out there, sh uh, culture shock beyond for me. It was really difficult. I went from fifty seven fifth to San Bruno, California. I left on a Friday. I started working there on a Monday, and I wasn't. It wasn't like one of those fancy president of CO moves. It was like, you check in, you check out, you get back on the plane. I did that for, I guess, eight months. And, wow. you know, getting the hotel rooms and I, I just didn't, it wasn't like, oh, this is the luxe way of moving, relocating. So I, um, so I did that. And uh, my first visit to the stores, I'll never forget, I was in Houston, Texas. I parked the car because I, I want to see as many stores as I could. They had 430 stores or something. And I, you know, so I was trying to get a real sense of it. And I, uh, I look at all these things under the windshields of cars, and it says Gap today, thirty percent off. Oh mm. my God! So I see Hector in the store. I said, "What's going on here, Hector? Oh, we we think this will drive traffic. It's like a, <laughs> this sounds like this happened uh, six months ago. But. Yeah. So in any case, uh, that's what I was. I was up against that. I came in culturally, didn't fit at all. Uh, the office of San Bruno overlooking a cemetery, the airport, and Highway 280. And I'll never forget Friday afternoons. I got so depressing. What the hell am I doing here? It was very tough. Public company, stock was dropping. Business was horrible. Because what you have to do is take your markdowns. 
and all the goods were bad goods. And Don and I, we always had this interesting relationship. Uh, it was kind of, uh, you know, we agreed, we disagreed, contrarian. And uh, I started the end, uh, Thanksgiving week in 1983. I got there on a Monday. I went home on a Wednesday. I got back. On, you know, that's what I was doing through June until my uh, wife and then one son moved out to California because it was the school year. And Don says, how could you take all these markdowns? This is January. The earnings were going to be terrible. The stock was dropping and I was a nervous wreck. I never ran a public company. And, you know, there I was. And Don was, he was the owner-ish. They controlled 30%. And if you control the company, the stock, you control yeah. the company. And he was very supportive of ideas. But when he saw what was happening in reality, and I got, I'm very emotional. And I'm sitting there. He says, you can't take these markdowns. I said, I have to. And then, I don't know, I don't think we had a fight or anything. I said, I have to take them because you have to convert the bad goods into cash. Now, no one gave me a course in this, but that's what you have to do. So uh, we, we had run-ins every once in a while. The earnings, the stock dropped from, I think, 24, 26 to 12. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I didn't sign on with this huge package because, like I said, I, you know, uh, I, maybe I got smarter or luckier later on in terms of the packages. Well, it takes, uh, oh, I'll never forget this. We had a horrible year of business because when you're getting rid of the old uh, and you don't have the new, uh, you, you're not going to do well. And mm -hmm. that's what happens. I say to every new uh, person on a turnaround, I said, it's a year and a half at least. And you're going to get, wor it gets worse before it gets better. You have to liquidate the bad inventory or whatever you have that got you there in the first place. So I did that. Uh, I struggled emotionally uh, and business-wise through the first uh, year and a half or so. Hard to adjust to San Francisco, different culture. I'm a New York City guy. Uh, and uh, the, the people were, you know, like, who is this guy coming? And they f a lot of them figured I wouldn't be there for long because there was a history of not being there for long. What was, really quickly, what was San Francisco like back then? Because I'm sure it wasn't what, what it is now. Well, yeah, we all hear what it is. No, it was a really, <laughs> have a nice day, <laughs> and the city is very beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it, it was like that, but uh, it. I like the New York humor. I like the New York edge. Uh, I never really felt 100% comfortably, and nor did my wife, Peggy, uh, but it was a really nice lifestyle. Uh, yeah. You know, I was, I'll never forget, I used to play tennis. Very nice life, easy to get around. It was before Silicon Valley, but it, I always missed New York. Yeah. You were there for a long time. 18 though, right? years. I went there wow. for three years. I had a deal to go there for three years. And uh, I, I, all I wanted to do was leave San Francisco when I was fired to be able to afford to move back to New York. You just wanted uh, a good exit package. I wanted, uh, and, and they did a very creative thing because I couldn't afford a bigger apartment in New York. And uh, that someone on the board came up with the idea as well. You index the price of an apartment you'd like to live in, not where I was living. And so on paper, I had a $400,000 gain because my apartment was worth then four hundred. dollars I paid 45000 for it. But you know what happened to New York real estate. And the apartment I wanted was 800000 I had no money. Uh, and now the apartment for eight hundred is probably $5 million. Who knows? Oh, it's a tough market. So that got me. I said, okay, deal. I'll go for three years. Uh, I'll come back to New York. They'll pay me the difference, and uh, I'll be very happy. And if I get fired, I'll come back in two years. So um, that I said yes, 
And then we had a huge fight because he didn't want to continue. Don and I, he didn't want to continue my three-year go back. Okay. So anyway, uh, he, he finally agreed. And I stayed 18 years. Uh, and so it, it took a year and a half to, to do the I, turnaround? I'll never forget. Uh, it was, I started in November. Uh, we had a, a meeting in Carmel, California about what do we do if in fact we run out of cash or we can't afford to pay or whatever. And that was in July. And I am like shaking because like, you know, inside because, oh my God, uh, we're talking about if this doesn't turn around, who knows what happens? August, I think 15th or something, we redid, Don and I and the team redid 430 stores. Brought an architect in who worked with me on Ann Taylor. We redid 430 stores. And without Don, that could never have gotten done. And no one would ever do it. So he was willing to spend the capital. All the new goods hit, and it was like a rocket ship. It was stunning. I'll never forget. I wish I... Uh, I wish I could relive that period because it was amazing. And um, it just took off. You know, we got rid of Fall Into the Gap, which I, you know, that was the name of the thing. Put a new campaigns together. Uh, in fact, Maggie from Ann Taylor moved to California. Tony from Ann Taylor uh, stayed in New York. She was the chief design person. And I only took two or three people. I think good designer, good marketer, and a good merchandiser you need that to be successful in a fashion company. And Gap took off like crazy until 1987, the uh, crash of the stock market. Oh. Stock went from 12 to 78. It was, I, I didn't, it was crazy. And then it crashed back down to 18 or 19. And uh, I, I did an article in the Wall Street Journal. Don was in Europe. And uh, you know, I, re I, I read the article later on. And I said, well, I was just saying it's long term. Things turn around. I think uh, it was an amazing run. Yeah. Amazing. And we started um, Gap Kids, and then we started Old Navy in 1994. And you and you bought Banana Republic and Banana, revamped Don it? Don bought Banana Republic the year before I got there. Uh, and then I started uh, Old Navy based on uh, uh, an article I read in the New York Times where it said that Target, then called Dayton Hudson, was starting a company called Everyday Hero. It was a copy uh, of Gap uh, at cheaper prices. And long story, uh, went out to visit, said this is no good, but they probably know something because they probably do a lot of research. I do different kinds of research. I did my version of research, 10 people, $200 each, go out, shop, and yada, yada. And I found out 80% of the jeans in America was sold for $30 and less, and Gap started at $35. I mm -hmm. said, oh my God, I was shocked. Uh, and then we decided to do it, uh, took someone from, and we had the Gap organization available to help out. Yeah. And so you had this architecture of Old Navy was the the affordable, Gap was still affordable, but a little more. And then Banana was like a, a little fancier. Yeah. And, and uh, Old Navy, the vision was uh, to compete with respect, fashion, and no sale yeah. against Tar all the discounters. Yeah. And uh, I felt uh, that was possible to do. And it became what, a four billion, a billion it's dollar business in today. four years yeah, or okay, something? It passed the billion dollar mark faster than any other retailer at that point, except Apple, which <laughs> passed it uh, sooner once they started opening stores. Do you, uh, I know you probably can't talk about your time on the board 
of directors of Apple, but did you learn a lot from doing that that, to help inform the apparel retail businesses? Like how different do you think that business is from the the businesses that you've run? Uh, Apple? Uh, Mm -hmm. No, I, uh, Steve, uh, first of all, I I love Steve. He was, he was so smart and good at the business and uh, uh, built an incredible, incredible business, needless to say, which is still building behind Steve to a degree. Uh, He asked me to help him design a retail store. Mm -hmm. He designed the store. I said, let's get a warehouse uh, and let's put a store in a warehouse that we designed together. And that's what we did. Uh, and, uh, you know, Steve, I love Steve, but, you know, I was his employee. It's okay. I didn't mind. You know, I didn't mind being Steve's employee. I just read the Disney War book about Disney during the um, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and he plays a small role in it. But Steve, it was, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was really interesting. Yeah, he's a, he's a, a guy who, um, interesting, smart, brilliant, uh, futurist, and but he gets it done. And he, he ran that company... Uh, as an entrepreneur. And uh, so, uh, but uh, I helped him on retail. That's what he wanted me. I took me, I kept saying no for a year to join his board. That wasn't smart on my part, but you know, I don't really enjoy public company boards, yada, yada. And finally he said, if you join Apple's board, I will join Gap's board. And I said to me, we have a deal because Steve is irreverent. He's not afraid to fight with anyone in the world. He'll say what he thinks, and he gives you a hard time. So it was fun watching him for a while. Well, you sort of think on the outside that these boards don't really have any input, but it sounds like some of them do. Um, it depends on the CEO, and it depends on the quality of the board. Uh, in my experience in the garment business, uh, it's very hard to find a board director, uh, a director who kind of understands the nuance of the fashion business. There's something about, and I can't explain it, that either you get it or you don't get it. Uh, and uh, Steve uh, always said, I don't, I'm not sure about this, I don't know this, but he, was, uh, he always created good discussions at the board meetings. That's interesting. So, so you create, you essentially create Gap Inc., these, yeah. these three Yeah, well, businesses. Old Navy, and you know that was named after a bar in Paris. I don't know if you know no, that. No, I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, I was That's driving to the airport uh, in Paris uh, with Maggie again. And I passed a bar on Rue Saint-Germain. It said Old Navy, which closed, I think, last year. Mm. It's been here all these years. Wow. And uh, I registered the next day in America. It was it was free. And, uh, and that was the name. Now, we got back, uh, and we were ready to launch Old Navy, but the board didn't like the name. And you can't argue with what you name your child. But you can argue with what you name a company if you're the controlling shareholder, the board of directors. We hired two naming companies and uh, finally got to, (laughs) it was a game we kind of played. And uh, we finally got them to call it Old Indigo. Hmm. And Old Indigo wasn't legal and we had no time. So we ended up calling it Gap Old Navy. And uh, I said, you leave Gap up there and in five years there will be no Gap because you don't want to combine two brand names. And then first store opened, uh, the second store opened uh, uh, on highway, I forgot the name of the highway. They had a huge line in front of the store. We called it Old Navy and then the rest was history. It went like a rocket. We had wonderful marketing and the team 
we had a great team. It's always a team. You put together creative people, and then there's like a symphony. Yeah. Uh, and all too often, that's not understood in our business. Now, maybe the things I got involved with were much more instinctively centric, but it was all about the feeling of a brand and where it goes, and you have to be in charge of it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I find that's what it's about. Now, uh, I wouldn't have done so well running a discount company because yeah. it's not what I do. So managing that difference between Gap and Old Navy, we look at Gap being now, and they've had a lot of trouble with that. What do you think there was a way to do that? That that because now the the whole culture is discount, and all of those companies kind of run together more than they used to. Do you think that there is a way to to separate those three businesses? You mean uh, Banana Gap and yeah. Old Navy? Well, I always yeah. said when I was there, I said we should sell off Banana Republic. Uh, because that was always the most complicated or difficult one. Yeah. Uh, but um, I've actually said that since I'm not there, and uh, I, they want to hold on to it. It's fine. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, if you don't find the right person, and it's in the fashion industry, it's always a person. Uh, in the fashion nuance industry, it's in in the in other companies. I think it's a lot different. I've never. You know, been involved. I didn't want to be involved in companies where you're marking up, you're marking down, you're promoting, or you're buying market goods. I don't like market goods. I don't want to deal with people, who, salesmen, who are selling me goods in the marketplace. So you are never going to be recruited to run Amazon Fashion. Never. So why did you leave Gap, and and how did you get to J Crew? Well, I left Gap because Don fired me. Why did he fire you? Well. Um, I have theories, <laughs> and uh, uh, we had a terrible two-year run. It was the uh, dot-com problems. Mm -hmm. uh, business wasn't great. We had much too much real estate. And I I remember then, I kind of was impressed with H&M, and I, I think I went a little too far to the left on fashion. It wasn't like- Is I, this during the, sweat, the stripy sweater? Uh, no, I don't remember. I think it was okay. during whenever it was it was the stock market was bad. Anyway, the business was bad, but I think uh, there's a lot of theories I have. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, uh, I've never said this except the day after he fired me, we had the press. He said he made a mistake. Hmm. Told me he made a mistake. Well, Hello. He made. He made. Yeah, it was kind of a you know for me personally. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, he said that he and his family would back me in any new business I wanted to do. So um, I was so upset with everything. My family was upset. You know, 18 years, uh, $160 million value to $8 billion. $400 million to $14 billion. I get fired without notice. Steve Jobs called me the night before. And he said, you're getting fired tomorrow morning. He wasn't uh, told until then. And uh, I, I just, you know, it was so hurtful. It wasn't, you know, it's okay to get fired. I actually didn't mind getting fired, but uh, the way it happened uh, was not nice. Well, 20 years later, yeah, well, they're still- Don, Yeah, well, Don and I spoke, uh, yeah. and he used to call me, and, um, you know, congratulations on the turnaround. 
and I'm thinking, and I, and I used to speak to him, uh, but I, you know, today I, I see Bob when he's in New York and I don't see them enough. I like the, I like yeah. the sons. We always got along well-ish. I'm sure it was very difficult for Bob and Bill to work with me and with their dad, uh, caught in the middle. Uh, but it was quite an 18 years. Yeah. But nothing's easy. You know, you look at what you go through in building companies and every company has this, uh, kind of uh, personality to it that complicates matters. Yeah. And and when you got back to New York with all that emotion and feeling, how did you find J. Crew? And how did you, I mean, at that point, you could have retired then. Uh, you, uh, it's you, not in my vocabulary. You, your yeah. mind cannot stop being creative. There's nothing that puts a hold on the way you think. Yeah. And uh, I, what do I do all day? I, I mean, you know, like, hello. <laughs> You know, I I, uh, I, um, I I don't think retirement is, I don't play, I tried to play golf last, not that I'm retired now, but I took up golf and yeah. I gave it up in two weeks. So I said, this is not for me. I joined the club. My wife still says, why do you join the club? You should have tried the game first. Anyway, uh, so I, I can't play golf. It sounds like a horrible uh, game yeah, to me. Uh, yeah, well, I didn't want to play, but I think um, uh, I, I took four months. I knew Jim Coulter. Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, ran, uh, who was the owner of J. Crew? Okay. Jim runs TPG. He was a San Francisco friend. He still is a friend. Uh, and we started to chat. He called me and and uh, he, he he was concerned about uh, doing anything with the new CEO that was there. And TPG is a private equity firm. And TPG, just to... private equity. They yeah. own Neiman Marcus at that point. They don't have a lot of retail. They sold Neiman's uh, and they own... J. Crew probably for seven or eight years at that point. Mm -hmm. They still own it. And uh, we got together. He asked me to look at the merchandise. I looked at it just as a helper. And I could see it was going, you know, it's what I do. Yeah. It was not going in the right direction, the new assortments. And uh, I always admired J. Crew from afar. I thought it was a great business. I love their catalog. I love their style. They just didn't know how to make money. And uh, which just didn't. That's like an important thing. <laughs> and uh, and I think uh, so. I joined the I joined the company. I invested. I bought ten percent of the company, which I still own. Uh, but uh, I mean, we've had dividends and returns on 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 my investment. But my last investment, I think I'm still at ten percent of the company. But I did that for um, I guess that was fifteen years. Uh, started made well. I bought the name before I joined. Um, J. Crew, uh, a friend of mine, a fellow named David, uh, came in uh, and showed me the Ma Madewell logo. Mm -hmm. And David um, said, what do you think? I said, I love that logo. He said, well, do you want to buy it? I said, what about you? He goes, well, I, don't I can't buy it. I don't have the money. And uh, it was $125,000, so I bought it because I loved And it created um, kind of an inspiration inside of me. And I kept the name. Uh, and when J. Crew turned around, about three, three or four years later, we were ready to start Madewell. And I think it was uh, Madewell's probably, I don't know, 12 or 14 years old now. So I was at J. Crew probably, I don't know, two or three years and hired, uh, well, we had the team. You know, when you at Gap or J. Crew, you have this big company, you can draw from the talent. Mm -hmm. So. We started made well. We started working on it. It was men's and women's. Uh, within a year, I realized men's didn't work here because 
J. Crew needed to fix its men's business. Long story short, we opened a liquor store, we changed J. Crew all around. So then J. Crew's men's business was very successful. So uh, we started with uh, Madewell. Uh, two stores, one store, the first store is in Dallas, Texas, bad location. Second store is in Las Vegas, Nevada, bad location. <laughs> Wasn't good for our uh, confidence and future. And then I kept for the first year or two saying, why the hell did we do this? I said it to myself because I did it. And it's costing us money. We're losing 10 million a year after a while. And then it just kind of, you know, over four or five years, we got the right team in and it just took off like a rocket after five or six years. You know, what's interesting. So many of the designers, especially on the men's side at J. Crew ended up launching their own brands or doing other big things and becoming names. Do you think that that was just because I I don't know any of the names of the Gap design. I mean, I know some of the people who worked at the Gap during that period, but it, the, there were tons of J. Crew people, Marissa Webb on the women's yes, side, Snyder. Todd Snyder, yeah. all of these people suddenly became names in and of themselves. Do you think that that was just reflective of where the culture had gone or or why do you think that happened? Or was that purposeful that you kind of made these people, obviously Jenna Lyons, Somsack, who you work with at Alex Mill now, they're all people who, you know, people who read fashion press, they know who they are. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, well, Jenna was a critical partner over the uh, J. Crew years. Uh, uh, let's see. Todd was great. I love Todd. He left because he wanted to have his own name nameplate. In fact, he just opened the liquor store where the J. Crew liquor store used to be. But, you know, when Todd left, I was kind of angry at him. Todd, how could you do this? We're just <laughs> getting on the map. But, you know, something, uh, it, you know, that's the way you feel at times. But uh, we're good. I, actually, I'm friendly with most people who left, who did this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but I, I don't know what the reason is. I think sometimes people uh, unreasonably think they could make money. It's really hard to start a company be a designer, and make a profit. And if you don't have a partner as a designer, a good partner, a good operating partner, a good merchant, uh, it's hard to really be successful. It's a struggle. The thing that I don't see a lot, and you mentioned the word creativity, and as you know, I've just spent some time living in Paris and covering the businesses there, and every CEO there, I mean, a lot of it is is just spiel, but they use the word creativity constantly. I very rarely hear people on the business side in the US in, in retail or apparel talking about creativity. Do you think that the disconnect between the operator and the creative person is bigger now than it used to be? Do you think operators used to care more about that part of it or? Uh, I think it's a scary term in my opinion. No one's ever asked me that question. It's scary. What does creativity mean? It's kind of what's cooking up in your mind. It's things that go on. Uh, uh, you cannot build a great product company without being creative. You probably can't do anything well the first time without being creative. Look at the car industry. Uh, my feeling is they need more creativity. They need someone who knows the wheels are gonna look good, uh, the rides are gonna be right, the interior is designed well. I, I visited a car company twice and they had like six different people designing the one car. I went to the design room. By the way, in both cases, the CEO didn't go to the design room with me uh, and I was their guest along with one of the board members in both cases. And I'm thinking, like, why wouldn't they go to the design room? Even if you didn't want to, just go. And uh, when I see a car, it's funny, I see a car, if the wheels are wrong, 
And I've seen cars where the wheels are wrong. It ruins the car. I've seen clothes where the button might be wrong or something's wrong. It kind of ruins the blouse. And I think creativity is, uh, it's hard to explain what it is, but you're, you're, again, your mind never rests from that. And I don't know how it works in other people. In my, uh, I lived a lot of my young life uh, outside of my real life in a way. So I was always thinking, maybe, I'm, I'm speculating now, I was always trying to make things better than they were in my life. So maybe that creates a creative thing in your life. Now, the other thing that's funny in my life, not funny, is my dad was of a certain type. He was kind of a bitter guy who uh, wasn't very happy in his life, but he was always well-dressed. Mm. And I kind of, you know, you put two and two together. He worked in the garment business. He was well-dressed. Um, I don't know if that influenced He wasn't a creative thinker. And I don't know why I think the way I do. Uh, but I think people are intimidated by the word. And I think the problem with most products today, except great products, uh, is a lack of creative vision especially in the apparel business, fashion apparel business, a lack of creative vision on what will work. Uh, and uh, that's why we kind of started Old Navy for that reason, uh, because I felt the discount market needed, and it was very different in those days. Uh, I thought it needed like a cool kind of operator who wasn't, you know, $7.95 on everything and was fun and was respectful and focused and smaller. Uh, and Madewell was just a name that uh, inspired me to whatever. So uh, I don't know. You can. I think creativity is not a popular thing today or well thought of. Now, algorithms are. <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, I see so many startups with algorithms, which I used to do as a kid, but they didn't call it algorithms. Uh, you know, like you figure out how it never will tell you an algorithm will never tell you what a good style is, but I guess it helps you forecast if you don't have the ability to forecast on your own, which I did as a, because there was no such thing as an algorithm. Maybe the word didn't exist in the vocabulary in the English language, but I see all these people data-driven, algorithm-driven. Uh, yeah, I do all that, uh, but I, I do it with uh, my version of it. Show yeah. me if you sold 20 of this last year, how many could you have sold? And then uh, maybe you could have sold 40. And then how many will you sell next year if it's still going to be good? But nothing will tell you on a fashion item if it's still going to be good except uh, intuition and a gut. Now, there's not no analysis that can give you a great assortment. Yeah. So I really want to talk about Alex Mill and, and what you're doing there. But the, the one thing that I think is really interesting is you've been able to turn around and launch a bunch of companies and tap into, as we would say at BOF, tap into the zeitgeist and reflect the culture. And all of these things come to pass. They eventually, like J. Crew had a huge, huge spike. And there are a bunch of reasons that I'm sure you don't want to go into now, but you can read tons of articles on BOF about it and that the reasons it it declined and and you know, all of these companies like Madewell, it might be doing really well right now, but 10 years from now, who knows? This isn't, retail is so cyclical. 100%. How do you, like, as a 
an executive that you're going to have to deal, you know, you're going to have to deal with that every time that it's going to end at some point. How do you deal with that? Well, it's a really good question. I think uh, all fashion, it's cyclical. You said the key word, guarantee to hit a wall, always. And uh, I've hit more walls. And then you pull it out. You kind of, you sit down and you figure out how to fix it. Now, it's not, a, it's not a business where you can get knocked down and like, oh, I had enough. Uh, and by the way, I think uh, it's not a business for bureaucrats either because a bureaucrat doesn't really care that much unless as long as they're being taken care of financially and they all get the private jets. And you never want to kind of give up the private jet. Uh, but if you're an owner or if you're an owner or an emotional owner, because I said to Don when I got fired, I said, Don, who cares more about this company than me? I know you own more stock than I do, but every single day I'm here to watch your ownership and mine and satisfy customers. Uh, there is an emotional ownership that you must feel and a passion about what you do, in my opinion, to be successful. And none of us are easy in terms of how we think. Uh, I think we all run a little scared. I think so. No one's done a book on the psyche of people who are responsible for companies. But I'm talking about the founders, uh, the emotional founders, people who are there and feel like they own everything in that company. And I will show you a group of people, my guesses, that uh, aren't that easy about any, that a lot of things. Complicated, insecure to a degree, so on and so forth. Now, everything's guaranteed to hit a wall. Now, uh, in my case, I like to make a difference. J. Crew uh, has um, it's missed the way it was because uh, I don't know where you go to buy really nice clothes at very fair prices and good quality. Yeah. Not a lot of choices out there. I'm stunned at the prices of clothes today of nice quote unquote nice clothes. Stunning. So I I heard you speak once years ago and you said something about I, if I could never run a public company I would do you think a big part of it is the pressure from the public market uh, There's two the biggest pressure is self-imposed public or private uh, it doesn't matter uh, you care as much about it if it's pu public is just another element of hassle pressure whatever. But I don't know, you know, I never cared less because we were private or because we were public. Of course, public, look, when I was younger, yeah, I was a tortured soul when I was younger and <laughs> ran a public company for the first time. And all of a sudden, they're writing about the stock. Uh, and I wish I, I figured it out earlier in my life that it doesn't matter because long term, it will be where it is. I have learned uh, one thing in terms of that, the stock at some point in a fashion company will never be what it's worth when it's overpriced. Now that makes sense, right? But it's a hit a wall, people are gonna get a little tired of it and so on and so forth. And everyone does hit a wall uh, cyclically. Now, uh, some companies will grow forever, but not, not many. And if you look at the fashion landscape, name companies that have been relevant uh, for a long time. And there's not a lot on that list. It depends on the leadership of those companies, if they're fashion companies. Yeah. Like Zara, for example, fashion company. Um, I know they're inexpensive goods, and but you know, long time, long yeah. success. Yeah. Same management. Yeah, that's interesting. So 
you still own part of J. Crew. I own I own part of the company. Yes. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? What I'm curious about is so you you are working on and and advising on Alex Mill, which is your son's business. Yes. And that is in some ways, you know, as a consumer, I can see how it competes with J. Crew, but it is also a different beast. And I'm would love to hear more about kind of what you think Alex Mill can what what purpose Alex Mill can serve in the retail landscape and what that's been like because this is the first company that does it it has funding from you and friends and family funding. Right. Whatever that means. Yeah. But what this is this is you are well, actually the entrepreneur in this case, mm-hmm. not just the emotional one. Yeah. Uh, I think uh the funding, uh, what that means is no one's going to tell you uh, what to do in terms of funding, uh, which is kind of nice for me, but it's, you know, you write your own checks. So it's kind of good. Alex and I fund it, uh, and uh, Alex's sister mm-hmm. is the third funder. It's truly a family business, which is, you know, tough in itself because, you know, Alex, I try not to have him work for me, me work for him, but. And not easy, you know. It's no, always it's I always a, not. always a little complicated, but I think. Uh, and Samsac is now a co-founder. Okay. Uh, Samsac uh, left. Uh, he quit his old job mm-hmm. at J Crew, and uh, I became his agent. I got him other <laughs> jobs, you know, temporarily. He had a non-compete, and then uh, I felt I was getting uh, a little like, "What am I going to do?" It's hard to be an advisor. As I was, I was on some boards. I, and you know, uh, I don't like to just advise because most of the time they you know, don't get listened to. So I was finding myself in a new position in life. It was very tough being out the first year, a year and a half. I'm saying, what do I do? I kept busy like crazy, but it wasn't things I was passionate or was having fun with. Yeah. You know, like I'm on the board of uh, Warby, mm-hmm. and that's a great company. It's fun. But you know, it doesn't take a lot of time, or Outdoor Voices doesn't take a lot of time, or whatever. And then Samsac was there, uh, and Alex was there with Alex Mill, and I put them together, and I figured now I can have a job, (laughs) (laughs) which uh, I I thought there was a need in the marketplace. You know, everyone's called this white space. You know, Madewell didn't start with white space. Uh, in fact, uh, it would never get funded, made well, if it had to start with a mission of the white space. But our mission was to have a very cool store that had the best jeans assortment in the world for women only. Now they do men's. Um, and the only reason it has the best jeans assortment is because the talent in that company and Mary the Maven is our jeans person, you know? Yeah. I call her Mary the Maiden. That's not her last name. It's a stage name. But <laughs> she, um, but you know, there's people who, it's only a matter of team. So there's Samsac, uh, who I admired and loved, worked from, with him for 15 years. There's Alex, who has a business that was wholesale only, men's only, had a really nice little cult following, but not really going anyplace with too high prices. I, I, like I said, I live in $1960. So uh, I then said, well, let's get together. I'll fund it uh, with Alex. And that's what we did. We put a little team together. We have a little office. And then we started designing clothes. uh, And we had to sell wholesale to get orders. So uh, we've been doing it together probably a year and two or three months now. And it's really interesting for me uh, because I think uh, we're trying to, dress people 
who uh, it's kind of a certain vibe we have uh, about you know clean clothes, simple, nothing complicated, nothing victimy, uh, but clothes you're not going to throw away, clothes that will stay in your closet, and uh, and quality, but not at the prices I'm seeing out in the marketplace today. Uh, for the same thing. It kind of reminds me of my early days when we started Gap and I said, I love Ralph Lauren, but his prices are high. Uh, and uh, and that's how I feel now. I love whoever, but their prices are too high. Yeah. And uh, I shop stores, I've been shopping stores a lot in the last month. I don't shop that many stores. I'm stunned at the retail prices. They're all double markup goods, meaning it's not direct. Uh, they're goods that, the, the manufacturer, designer, sells to a store. There's two markups and two profits. And then go online and you can buy half the brands at TJ Maxx. Yeah. So we uh, so we just kept it one markup. Uh, we're not making a lot of money in wholesale, but that was our plan. But it's really nice clothes, cool clothes, I think. Uh, and, um, and we want to become famous for certain categories. We're working on it now. And uh, we got a lot of good press. The biggest problem we have is no one knows who we are. Yeah. So we opened the store on Green Street. About four people a day walk by. It's not a great location. but It's a nice store. I've been it's there. It's a nice store and nice goods. And uh, and I wear the stuff because I love the clothes. And I need a place to buy clothes. Yeah. So how do you – you said nobody knows who we are. Yeah. How do you fix that? You don't have – a huge company to give you a bunch of marketing and advertising, and now right. it costs so much money to to acquire customers online and all that stuff. How do you? I can see it in the fashion editor circle. I went to dinner with a bunch of fashion editors after Fashion Week, and one of them had on a Henley, and she said, "Oh, Alex Mills, my new favorite brand. My, a lot of my friends are buying it, but." That's also because they are connected to the industry. They'll right. go to a press preview and then they get into it and there will be word of mouth. But how do you get that, you know, year or two big bump that that you've gotten at these other companies with all that financial backing? Well, you know, uh, it's a really good question. And I ask it all the time of ourselves and others. So uh, I think a lot of this big marketing money, it, just this personal opinion, because I see it on companies I look at, because my first year out of uh, J. Crew, I was sitting in a venture capital office. The amount of money spent on digital marketing is like wild. The percentages, these companies, a lot of them, their budgets are 20, 30% of sales on marketing. Uh, the uh, acquisition, because I still like, by the way, word of mouth, viral, and I like creative marketing. And, and to me, the creative marketing creates a lot of demand because it gets out there. But how do you do it? You gotta be a little patient, which I'm not. But I met like this morning at St. Ambrose Uptown. I, I knew a woman, I see her, they never heard of Alex Mill. I gave each of them a gift card and I said, please tell all your friends. So that's three people more who know. I do that. Uh, I think word will get out uh, and we're gonna, we're pushing the creative button yeah. in the company. So it's still some time. Yeah. Um, one question is, how do we fix the discount culture in the U.S.? How, do, how does the discount culture, is it ever going to go away or do you just, it, it, should it be regulated by the government? <laughs> uh, no on that, uh, but uh, we'll never fix it. It's yeah. never going to be fixed. The only way it'll be fixed is 
good day in, day out pricing, fair, and good quality product that people want. And I and apparel's different. Uh, if you uh, we're not on sale, we're trying not never to be on sale. We'll see what happens, but I don't think you fix it. I I think it's very easy for most companies short term. And if you think about it, how many people are running long term companies? You know who runs long term companies? Owners and emotional owners. Otherwise, I don't think there's that many long term people in this world. And long term, by the way, it's to me it's like you never stop learning or doing your job well if you're there. So I had an 18-year job. I had a 15-year job. And my four-year job would have been 10 years or more if I didn't, if I could deal with the owners of the company. Yeah. But I don't think you'll ever fix it because I think it's an easy way out. The last question. If you could give one piece of advice to a young executive in apparel or fashion or whatever you want to call it, on how to better work with creative people or how to get the most out of creative creative people that they can. Because that's the disconnect I see a lot. Uh, so this person is not a creative, right? No. This uh, person is a... The thing is, I do you think that the executives need to be feel like they're a little more creative? Uh, I have an enormous respect always in my life for people who are creative in any any uh, part of the world, any uh, profession, uh, creativity is something that I've always admired. Not not as a kid growing up per se, but I don't know if you can teach it uh, because uh, I find this connection to creative people is uh, instinctive, and we didn't talk about instinct and intuition at all. But so much of the world is kind of that especially on creatives. And uh, I, the fellow, a friend I had lunch today with a guy who runs a company, and he says, how do you deal with the creatives? Uh, it's not easy. And I said, it might not be, but the most difficult people to manage at times are the most talented. Now, if there's no integrity there or things like that, then you just don't deal with them. I don't think uh, there's a lot of uh, understanding or thought about what goes into the process of long-term creativity in the apparel business. Because as soon as something turns down, kind of that's it. Uh, but I don't know if I'm answering your question. Well, I guess the question is, if if you're an executive business side person and you're not, I guess the, the answer may be that if you're not willing to kind of work with these more complicated types, then you probably should go into another business because it's gonna be complicated. Yeah, well, um, I, you know, I honestly, it's so inside of me to uh, uh, to respect and admire that. Uh, I don't know what it is. You know, it's like uh, I don't know if you can teach it. Yeah. Because uh, I I have to think about this, and I know we don't have any more time. Yeah. But I don't know if it's teachable. One final question: Does product still come first over all the other stuff? Uh, I think uh, you cannot have a successful product company unless it's a commodity. Uh, without starting with great product, great merchandising, great marketing, uh, and uh, and long-term view. Yeah, sure it is. Um, yeah, to me it is. I, I, I don't think enough people talk about the product. Uh, I hear a lot of people talking about white space, uh, algorithms, this, that, and the other. No, you know, yeah, seriously, yeah, yeah, no. it's just like it is what it is. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's about product first. 
I'll argue all day long. Now, certain companies, it's not. I see it in their assortments. It's about price first and move the goods out and not maybe respect the product. Those companies will do a hell of a lot better if they actually added the product as an important mix to, to their business. My opinion. Mickey, thank you very much. That was super fun. Thank you. If you want to build a career like Mickey Drexler, one great place to start is BOF Careers. This entire week on the Business of Fashion, we've been spotlighting our platform for connecting the best talent in fashion with the best opportunities in fashion. So if your 2020 vision is to find a new career opportunity, BOF Careers offers the most exciting opportunities in the fashion and beauty industry today with more than 2,000 jobs for more than 400 global brands from emerging design design startups, to innovative tech companies, to big established global behemoths. Start your career search at businessoffashion.com slash careers.